Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today on this special day, we are joined by a special guest, a certain Dr. Malcolm B. Spleed, otherwise known as Dr. Malcolm, who is the head of snow studies at the University of Devizes in Devon here in the UK. And what we're going to be talking about today is a very unusual subject, something that I think very few people will have heard of, and that is the snowosphere. What is the snowosphere? Uh, it's a subject that has become more popular in scientific circles in recent years, but it's got a long way to go to be fully accepted as a theory. So thank you very much indeed, Dr. Malcolm, for joining us on the programme. Uh, you're more than welcome, Julian. It's, it's very nice to be here. Well, it's great to be speaking to you because uh, I heard about you through watching the video presentations by your colleague, Ian Livermore, on that YouTube channel, the Science Channel, I think it's called. Very, very interesting, particularly in Module 4, where he talks about this thing called the snowosphere and how revolutionary the whole idea is. It has uh, quite a long history um, and quite a sophisticated idea. Perhaps you could, in a little while, tell us about that. But um, it would be interesting just to get a little bit more about you. Uh, you uh, are, the, as I say, the head of snow studies at the University of Devizes. Um, excuse my mirth, but uh, what have you devised? <laughs> That's very funny, Julian. No, I didn't actually devise this myself. It's a theory that has been doing the rounds, if you like, for some considerable time. And I suppose it appealed to my sense of logic. Um, essentially, the theory, for those unfamiliar with it, is that around the Earth, around the entire globe of the Earth, is a sphere of suspended snow particles, uh, which is called the snowosphere. So when it snows, and when it appears that the snow falls down to the earth, what is happening, of course, is that the earth is rising to meet the snowosphere, and the snow particles are, in fact, stationary, suspended in the air. Right, so when we, if I, for example, look out of this window, and if it happens to be snowing, as we say, I think that the particles of snow are gently falling to the ground, but you're saying... This theory is suggesting that my senses are lying to me, that in fact what's happening is that it's kind of the other way around. That's quite a remarkable theory. Okay, well, we'll go more into that in a few minutes from now. Could you tell us just a little bit more about your life? You are now quite an eminent scientist, but I understand you came to academic study quite late in life, really. Well, I left school at the age of 16 with a sitting guilds in home economics. Um, I became a waiter in a local hotel for a period of time and a, a projectionist at our local cinema. Um, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, to be honest, but I was always interested in science and interested in nature and the way that the weather systems behaved. So I did come to science rather late. Um, I studied at the Open University Earth Sciences Unit, and it was there that I discovered this whole theory about the snowsphere. Okay, well, could you tell us a little bit more about the history of this revolutionary idea? I understand that it goes back to the middle of the 19th century with a couple of characters, Frederick Morris and Edward Edwin Judd. Uh, can you tell us about them and what they put forward, why they put it forward, etc.? Yes, well, I think... Like me, they were interested in questioning the received wisdom of the age, if you like. 
and they had a theory that the spectrum of electromagnetic light was dependent on the ether. Now, of course, the ether is something, or the ether, is something that has been largely disproved now. But while they were studying that, they came upon this idea of the different layers above the Earth, uh, for instance, the um, mesosphere, the stratosphere, etc. And between those two layers, they actually discovered by a process of sending up a form of weather balloon, and they discovered that there was this, all around the world, this layer of snow, because when the balloon came down, there it was on the balloon itself. So it was 1854, they published their first paper on it, and it did meet initially with widespread scorn, it has to be said. Yeah, well, I can understand that because it is so counterintuitive, this idea that somehow the Earth itself is rising to meet these particles of snow in the, well, they are, they constitute the snowosphere, and then it seems to us that the snow is falling from the sky. It's a, yeah, well, as I, I say, totally, yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, no, I, I take your point, Julian, but in the same way that the sun appears to rise mm. above the horizon every morning, and we all know that isn't true. Mm, mm. Yes, indeed, that is one of the features of science, isn't it, to uh, reveal things that one wouldn't expect to be true, but do in fact turn out to be true as a consequence of uh, empirical study and indeed, uh, you know, mathematical formulation. And I'll, I'll come to you, come back to you about this concept of the ways in which mathematics are related to this theory. Um, I mean, one problem that I immediately have with this is um, there are certain times when it's snowing and I can look out and see the, the particles seeming to fall. And yet I can ring somebody up, let's say a friend in a distant place and speak to them and they'll say, oh, it's it's not snowing. So there presumably is a sort of threshold between places where it is snowing and places where it's not snowing. But I find it very difficult to imagine that the earth has radically moved up in places where it snowed and has stayed at a lower altitude in places where it's not snowing, you know, the, the interface between those two must be all sort of cracked roads, and, and but one never sees that. Uh, how, how do you explain this? Well, of course, it's not a definite delineated line, is it, hmm. for a start? It doesn't immediately snow in one place and immediately stop. Hmm. So there is a certain graduated level of rising of the Earth. And perhaps let me ask you a question back to you, Julian, mm. in that instance, if you did phone your friend, would you then get into your car and drive to them? Would you actually do that? Well, well no, I suppose I probably wouldn't, but I mean, one could... Mm. Okay, well, let me put so, that back to you in the term of a thought experiment, then I could get into my car, although I won't. I could do, and I could drive down the motorway. Would I not expect to find a new hill? No, no, mm. no, because you see, you're you're part of that hill. You see, it is impossible in the same way that... Well, take... For instance, uh, the brain. You can't imagine you being separate from the brain because you're using your own brain, you see. So mm. you are on that hill. You do not actually experience being on that hill. Very much in the, in the way that if you would climb a mountain or, or a large hill, you don't realise you're at the top of the hill until you are at the top of the hill. Mm. Oh, a bit like then the goldfish that goes round and round in the, the goldfish bowl is not really aware of its surrounding at all, that sort of thing. No, exactly. Mm. I mean, if you like, that would be a God's eye point of view, but you mm. are a, an ordinary human, as am I. Mm. So how far above the Earth is this snowosphere? Well, I think you must look at the layers of atmosphere as a, a continuum, if you like, and the snowosphere... At the moment, we believe it to be approximately five to six miles above the Earth. 
and it is approximately a mile in thickness. I mean, that does vary depending on where exactly we are in the solar cycle. And of course, the Rallanan belt plays its part too. So you have these various spheres. You have the geosphere, of course, which we're on, and then the troposphere, the stratosphere, the mesosphere, the thermosphere, ionosphere, exosphere. Where does this lie between those? Uh, it lies between the stratosphere and the mesosphere. Hmm. So above the stratosphere is the stratopause, which is the demarcation point, if you like. All of that does fluctuate. And then you have the snowsphere, and above the snowsphere is the mesosphere. So it is, relatively speaking, a fairly narrow band of flake nucleates. Hmm. And what's interesting is, you, you, I think you mentioned at the beginning, that it seems almost counterintuitive, perhaps, this theory. But if you just take a look at something like Wikipedia, you'll see that it actually, definition for snow, it says snow comprises individual ice crystals that grow while suspended in the atmosphere. So you see, it's not that counterintuitive. They are suspended in the atmosphere. Right. So you think that might be a bit of a a nod to the theory of the snowosphere without mentioning it? Yes, I think so. It does Mm. go on to say, of course, that they fall to the ground Well perhaps have to say that but um, no i think it is a, a nod mm. uh, to those people who actually understand the, the proper theory such as myself yeah well it would be quite typical of wikipedia not to be cutting edge or to certainly not to countenance some um, you know alternative yeah. theories mm. about things that's mm. quite typical um can i just come back to you with this question that i have about the interface between the snowy areas and the non-snowy areas I think I remember somebody suggesting that it might have something to do with a partial optical illusion, um, something related to how light is bent. Is there something to do with that? Yes, I mean, that is a, an area that we could certainly look at, the refraction of light. And, of course, mm. if snow is falling, it's going to refract light. I mean, that's obvious. Um, there is a phenomenon called a superior mirage. Now, interestingly, the superior mirage has been seen very recently off the coast of Dorset and also Cornwall, Mm. in that ships, tankers, uh, liners, appear to levitate uh, above the surface of the sea. And you can see those photographs. And In fact, um, the BBC has put that news item up, so it's it's hard to to refute that. Um, so well, I've I've seen those. I will put those notes in. Certainly, They're, it's very it's quite amusing actually to see that you know this yeah. amazing large tanker apparently uh, levitating above the ocean. Yes, uh, yes. people will be well, if they haven't seen it already, they'll find that quite remarkable. So, how does that relate yes. to this phenomenon? Well, going back well, going back to your thought experiment, if you were to get in your car and travel, a you would not appreciate the curvature of the Earth, mm. and b this um, superior mirage would also act against it. So you simply wouldn't notice. Remarkable. Um, Still, I wouldn't want people to think that this theory is something that is just from the 19th century. Nothing's happened since. The the, the ideas have been developing, have they not? Um, There's a certain lady called Cynthia Goodman at Carlisle University, and uh, she's done a lot of work on this. I think she's rather a, a mathematician, isn't she? And she's certainly modified the equations. I mean, I have here from Ian Livermore's video, one of the equations, which I'll 
Oh, shall I speak it? Let's, this is DF over DT equals lim over H going to zero, uh, multiplied by F. I, I won't go on. It's quite a long equation. However, she does say, I'm quoting from her here, the fundamental equations shouldn't be regarded as holding for all real values of X, Y, and T. Now that to me is, is, is gobbledygook, but mm. X, Y, and T seems they seem to come up as values a lot in the snow sphere equations. But she says that, um, you know, the fundamental equations of the theory should not hold for all real values of X, Y, and T. Could you, could you tell us what X, Y, and T are and, and why they're kind of, well, it used to be think they were absolute values, but now they're relative. Mm. Well, essentially, X, Y, Z, and T are the exceptional domains, or the singular points, if we'd like to refer to them as that. And they're regarded as instrumental in the production of waves or disturbances within the snowosphere. I mean, that's the simplest way to describe that to a layperson. And Cynthia Goodwin, in the, she was essentially conducting experiments in the 1940s, discovered this. And this has hugely increased our understanding of the snowosphere. Hugely. Mm. And it's had a lot to do with modifying a certain aspect of the theory called irregular planing, I understand, mm. uh, which has to do with Goodman's extension, as it's called. Is that right? Yes, exactly. Exactly that. Hmm. Well, now this brings us on to a very interesting part of the, I wouldn't say the theory, but the field of study in which the theory lies, because mm. in the wider sphere of snow studies, you have the atmosphere divided, well, the atmosphere through time, let's put it that way, divided into various stages, stages one, two, three, four, and looking into the future, stage five, we haven't reached stage five yet. And it looks at the way in which the snowosphere has changed in relation to the development of industrial society. Mm. Could you give us some idea of how the snowosphere has changed throughout those stages and what we might expect to find in stage five? Well, the transposition of the snow particulates, as I think you suggested there, certainly altered hugely since stage one, which is pre-modern. And then there was a, a causal linkage between the transposition and the precipitation at approximately up to a rate of 40 per thousand. Now, after the urbanising, industrialization, which is stage two, there's a huge shortfall of the transposition there. As it goes into mature industrial, it goes right down to about 10 per thousand. So this is to do with a number of mutually conjugate fields mm, mm. superimposed um, across the Lagrangian function of the total field, if you like. So in terms of stage five, who's to say, really? Do you see? Well, well I have to say, obviously, you're speaking in rather technical terms. Mm. But let, let me put it slightly differently. Um, obviously, the snowosphere goes through changes and it will change. How does that relate to the broader consideration of climate change? I mean, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change seems obviously obsessed with climate change. Do they mm -hmm. do they take any interest in the snowosphere at all? Well, here at the University of Devices, we did actually submit a paper on the effect of the snowosphere on climate change. We submitted that, let me see, back in 2018. And as yet, they still haven't reached a firm conclusion about it. I do contact them from time to time when they do say they are, uh, it is under discussion, <laughs> whatever that means, Julian. Okay, under discussion. I mean, it's slightly worrying. I think you'll agree it's slightly mm. worrying because this really is quite an important aspect. And the last thing we want 
is for the erosion of the snowsphere, leading to, well, significantly less snowfall. Hmm. You would, I would think that was probably a bad thing, wouldn't you say? I think it would. I mean, I certainly enjoy snow. I mean, do you think there's a, a bit of snowosphere denialism going on there at the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change? Um, I think that might be too strong mm. a word. I think mm. there's certainly snowosphere-phobia, mm. a fear perhaps to tackle something that seems at first rather counterintuitive. Yes. Which surprises yes. me because obviously scientists should really be keeping an open mind about everything, mm. as indeed I always have through my life, and that's what's allowed me to see the possibilities in this theory. Mm. Well, um, I'm going to say that uh, I don't doubt the existence of the snowosphere. I mean, as indeed Ian Livermore says in the documentary, the video documentary, it has been observed. It's not just a matter of theory. Um, I understand that it was first observed by the Royal Observatory in Greenwich back in 1954 mm-hmm. um, by a certain uh, uh, D.R. Woodward, mm-hmm. I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that later studies then built upon those observations uh, to... Yes, hard, hard work in there. Uh, hard work in there. Uh-huh. Yes. So that mm-hmm. they continued the observations mm-hmm. in more detail. Yeah. Again, I'm going to throw a challenge at you because one of their quotations is, quote, the Earth rises exponentially to reach the snowosphere at latitudes above 45 degrees, mm-hmm. uh, which is known as the zone of maximum precipitation, which you, perhaps you'll, you'll tell us what that is. Um, but so, I mean, it comes back to my question that I had before, you know, if the Earth rises exponentially to reach this snowosphere, mm. uh, latitudes above 45 degrees, well, you know, we're, we're here in, in, in the UK above 45 degrees latitude. So... <sighs> Wouldn't we feel that, you know, if it starts uh, to snow, you know, right. or it's starting to snow mm. and it's rising exponentially here, that suggests a great speed of rise. Um, hmm. Go on, then. Why don't I feel it? Well, uh, let me ask you a question. How fast are we travelling through space? Why don't we feel that? We're travelling at thousands and thousands of miles an hour through space. Mm. We don't feel that. If I go out for a walk, I don't get <laughs> blown over by the speed, do I? Mm. So I think that sort of answers that question essentially really mm. uh, that because of gravity and mass bearing down on us we simply don't feel speeds like that at all well let me come back at you because mm. nasa frequently does these uh, weightless testing exercises so you you have the astronauts get inside an aircraft and the aircraft drops and they experience weightlessness for a period of course until the the aircraft writes itself you know, they don't want to crash into the ground um but so the opposite of that would be we're here on the ground and we're washing up at a great rate of knots to reach the snowosphere the opposite of that would be that our perception of gravity would be increased so we'd feel squashed into the ground wouldn't we well i i do think you're exaggerating um when was the last time that you saw snow starting immediately a very heavy fall of snow it tends to start slowly at first building up over a period of several uh, minutes up to hours Mm. so you're not rushing up but the earth gradually rises up and I think this is an element that you're perhaps mm-hmm. not understanding in, in the theory. I mean, it's very easy to say that the Earth rises quickly, um, but it, it simply isn't true. It rises over a matter of several minutes, as I say, mm-hmm. and to a small extent in terms of the degrees taken as a whole on the uh, circumference of the Earth. Mm-hmm. Right, so exponentially doesn't mean quickly it means a a greater rate over time yes okay exponentially simply means it increases over a period of time but that's exactly it's not not a quick increase 
once it started, it uh, increases fairly rapidly, but over a period of mm. time, Julian. And I think this is what we must understand, you see. Mm. Well, I said that I'd come back to the mathematics of this. Um, I'm going to preface that with an experiment. One of your colleagues, a certain Professor Hugh Jones, who's assistant head of snow studies at Edge Hill University, did uh, an amazing experiment which was shown. Well, he's done a lot of experiments, of course, but one in particular that was shown on this video um, where he weighed some snow at ground level and then took, I think it was a teaspoon of snow, took it up to roof level and weighed it there and found there was a dramatic difference between the the weights at these different altitudes and quite remarkable okay at ground level it was i think nine grams for a teaspoon of snow but when he got up to roof level it was zero grams which certainly implies and indeed in some of his other uh, videos the higher and higher you go it actually it gets to negative weight which i think is quite extraordinary mm. which fits in with the mathematics of this can i just give you um this quotation from ian livermore in the introduction to snow studies mm-hmm. which he was, he was an editor of that published box for the university press anyway this um quote here i'll give you the quote and perhaps you could explain it in a little bit more detail mm. quote ian livermore mass isn't an absolute mm-hmm. it is relative to the sphere at which its motion is at rest as snow ascends it exponentially decreases in mass and thus weight, thanks to gravity, until at infinitely negative mass, it can decrease no further, which defines the snowosphere. Remarkable quotation. So, I mean, looking at this from a layperson's point of view, it seems to me that as the snow rises, it, it weighs less and actually remarkably weighs negatively and then goes on to infinity. But once it gets to infinitely negative weight, it obviously you can't go any further than that. And at that point, that is just where the snowosphere mm-hmm. lies. It's just a matter of mathematical reality. Have, have I understood that correctly? Well, I think you have. It's one of those situations, rather like particle physics, that if you claim to understand it, you haven't. Do you see? Right. Ian Livermore, let me just say, is one of this country's greatest science communicators. I think we're very fortunate to have him presenting uh, this uh, this series of films, especially, as you say, Module 4 for the Science Channel, because really he has a passion for the subject and a passion for communicating the subject to other people. Mm. But sometimes it is really very hard. You don't want to actually, what's the phrase, um, dumb down. No, no, no. Mm. No, no, because then you see you're actually misinforming people and then you get into the whole air of fake news Um, so what he's saying there is is something that you sort of have to look at in in greater detail in order for it to become clearer to you if i were to simplify it any more uh it would just be unintelligible nonsense Okay, well, all right, I see. Much in the same way as a particle physicist might talk about a wavicle, yes. uh, you know, is a particle a wave or is a wave a particle? And there's, yes. uh, you know, yes. it's a conundrum from which one can't escape, although I do understand that there are various interpretations of, of quantum theory. Um, but yes, I wouldn't expect to have a conversation about quantum theory, not that I'd even understand it. So it's something a little bit like that. Okay, so I find it very difficult to even begin to comprehend a notion of negative weight. Um, but you say, and your colleagues say that this exists. So does this not have implications for our mm-hmm. understanding of physical reality? I mean, is it not challenging head on our preconceived notions of mass and gravity and how mathematics actually relates to physical theory? Does it challenge everything? 
Well, let me put a question back to you, Julian, in terms of antimatter. Now, antimatter is a theoretical particle, is it not? Um, you might uh, recognize it from Star Trek or something. But right, yes. Yeah. Of course, antimatter is used in medicine, in medical research. Uh, positrons are particles of antimatter, and uh, a PT scanner is used now as a standard part of hospitals and, and, and medi- medical um, procedures. So are you saying that as snow is taken up to higher altitudes, that it actually becomes antimatter? Is that what you're saying? I'm, not, I'm, I'm using antimatter there as an example of something uh, similar to what you're saying, is that it, an infinitely negative mass does, if you were to take it to its conclusion, yes, become antimatter. Right, okay. But in reality, because of other physical constraints, it, it doesn't go to that point, and that's where we get the snowosphere. But if those other physical constraints were removed, it would go on into a state of antimatter. Yeah. Is that what you mean? Yes, but I think we don't luckily live in a universe where that happens. Mm. You have to balance wow. the equations with the practical element of the universe that we live in. Wow, yeah. So this even goes to a consideration of the very fundamentals of physical reality, the, the constants um, yes. and the values of fundamental reality. Yeah, okay. Well, it's very, very a, interesting. Very diff- ca- Sorry. Yes, it's not just a case of um, it was snow. It's, it's <laughs> considerably more than that. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much indeed, uh, Dr. Malcolm, for giving us an introduction to this subject. I do hope that you'll be able to come on at some point in the future and give us a little bit more detail and perhaps give us an update on how your research and your colleagues' research is going there at the University of Devizes. Um, it's been wonderful speaking to you. Presumably you have a lot of papers that people could read. I don't know whether those are open access on a website or anything like that, or would people have to email you to find out information? Um, I think the best thing probably in this instance is to email me and if you would include those in your your show notes, is that, is that what you call them for, for yes. this? And that would be probably yes. the best way forward and then I can contact people who who have an interest in the subject. Well, that's absolutely excellent, yes. Because, as you say, we are learning all the time. It's a wide open subject and it's fascinating absolutely fascinating indeed it has been a fascinating conversation i shall put your email in the notes and uh, say to listeners please do email dr malcolm he'd be very interested to receive your questions and i'm sure you'll be very interested and enlightened by the answers that are forthcoming thank you very much indeed for joining us on the show it's been a delight thank you very much for having me julian You are now quite an eminent scientist, but I understand you came to academic study quite late in life, really. Yes, well, I, I left school at the age of 16 um, with City and Guilds in home economics. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> City and Guilds in home economics. Sorry, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so are you saying that as snow is taken up to higher altitudes that it actually becomes antimatter? Is that what you're saying? I'm not. I'm, I'm using antimatter... Uh, 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 <laughs> <laughs> oh, you <I'm>... just died. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs>